Luke 10, verse 1 to 24. And this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not reject in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is God's word.
Thank you, Jonathan, for reading God's Word for us this morning, and thank you, worship team, for leading us into the Lord's presence. Grateful to the choir, to Esther and to Martin, for all your work in preparing that offertory piece. As most of you will know, we are again continuing in our theme of radical dependence. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about kingdom warfare. And it will feel like a sprint because there is more in these 24 verses than we can get through in the time that is allotted us today. But let's first prepare our hearts as we come to his word. Father God, quiet our hearts that we might hear from you. As we come today, we come intentionally placing ourselves beneath the authority of your word. Help us today not to come just to gather more information, but help us to come with obedient hearts, ready to respond. Do this for your namesake, we pray. Amen. Our text this morning is going to help us with a very, very important problem. The problem of defining kingdom or spiritual warfare. It will give us a very clear gospel picture of what that looks like. Uh, this was a problem because everyone tends to come to a term with their own definition. The Jews, for instance, had a very fixed idea of spiritual or kingdom war warfare. In their mind, kingdom warfare was a restoration of David's kingdom. That's why the Jews were predisposed to align their allegiance with the Herods, not some uneducated carpenter's son. They struggled with Jesus because he had no military experience. He did not appear to come from a royal family. He wasn't born in a palace. The Romans also had fixed ideas of the kingdom. Theirs was a culture in which Caesars or emperors and governors killed their own siblings in order to retain or maintain their grip on power. And so they were inherently hostile to anyone who called somebody else Lord. In the Middle Ages, even the church lost focus on the true meaning of warfare. In their mind, the kingdom was tied to geography, to land and territory. The Crusades were therefore a response to land and territory that was being lost to Islamic expansion. So friends, if you're one of those people who believes that theology doesn't matter, during the Crusades, about three million people lost their lives because of bad theology. And that theology has impacted the world even today in so much as the church today is the largest landowner on the planet. Because we have this idea that kingdom advance is about getting more geography, getting more territory. So, Paul could not have been more clear in Ephesians chapter 6 when he said, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. My guess is, some of us listening in today need the Lord, by his spirit and his word, to reframe our idea of kingdom warfare. We need to reshape our mindset on spiritual warfare. And so today, in our text, Dr. Luke is going to expose us to one of the clearest pictures of spiritual warfare we can find in God's word. But first, let's talk for a moment in verses 1 through 12 about the challenge of the harvest. In verses 1 and 2, it says this, after this, the Lord. Now, I've highlighted the Lord because Luke is unique among all the gospel writers in mentioning this particular term for Jesus. All the other gospel writers, when talking about this particular commission, would use, and Jesus. But for Luke, the use of this word is significant. It's a common title in the first century for an uncommon position. Lord, curie, or curion, was just the master of the house, the house owner. In fact, I am so old that I grew up with this archaic language. When someone came door to door selling encyclopedias or soap powder, they would come to the door and ask for the master of the house, meaning is the house owner here? Today I get mail to the homeowner, meaning not me, but to my landlord. It's somebody who's not a steward of property. It's someone who owns for Luke, it was important to note the authority of Jesus, not a carpenter's son, but the one who owns things. The Lord, the Master, appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two. Now, the, the, the second thing is, what, what, what did he mean by after this? After this meaning, after Jesus' harvest sermon in chapter 9. Remember, Eugene preached from this text Last week, after his keep your hand on the plow message, Jesus lands his sermon with immediate application. This is how we ought to see every message that comes from the Lord. Not what do I need to say or think about this information, but what do I need to do? Because this is what the 72 had to decide because they were sent on. Notice the direction. The direction was to go. The direction was outward, not gathering. He didn't gather them. He sent them. The word is apostello, meaning to send. Apostolic ministry is not about having authority. It's about the missionary obligation. The application is always involving going. I listen to his word, and then I have to ask, what do I now need to go and do as a result of what God has said? I listen to his word, and I need to ask, what do I now need to go and behave? How? How do I need to behave as a result of what God has said? And then we notice this. He sent them to every place where he himself 
was about to go. That's why, friends, missionary calling is so significant. Because biblically, God calls us to a place and a people in which he is about to bless with the grace of his presence and power. When we go, we are actually joining him in his work, in his harvest field. In verse 2, he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Did you catch that? Do you understand what's happening here? At the very moment that the Lord is sending out workers into the harvest, he's inviting them to pray for him to do what he's already doing. Now in two weeks, we're going to focus more on kingdom prayers. But the key is this. If we desire Jesus to sanction our prayers in his name, then we will pray prayers that are aligned with what he is doing in his world today. We will know his will, what he desires to do, and we will pray prayers that are consistent with that will. Jesus was setting his face toward Jerusalem, and he sent on 72 kingdom ambassadors to go to every village he would pass through on the way to Jerusalem. And so, verse 3, go your way. Behold, I am sending you as lamb, lamb, excuse me, in the midst of wolves. And, and suddenly, I have a problem with this. Because my, my culture confirms comfort. Not challenge, not difficulty, my culture constantly affirms, I deserve to be comfortable. My faith has bent the truth of the gospel to tell me that if it's uncomfortable, it must not be God's will for me. We've developed these Christian cliches to sanctify our fears. I felt like God was sending me somewhere, but then he closed the door on that opportunity, meaning it was suddenly difficult or, or some challenge or some unexpected thing came up. Th this is why Eugene reminded us last week of the theology of uncomfortable grace. Remember he said, sanctified, dying service comes before we can reign with Christ in glory. Paul Tripp's define, Paul Tripp, excuse me, defines uncomfortable grace in this way. God sends you, Jonah, where you do not want in order to do in you what you cannot do on your own. This is his purpose. Not just so that we would go do something, but that we would go do something that we cannot do so we begin to realize exactly the kind of God it is we serve. The one who can do in and through us that which only he can do. So I'm going to summarize verses 4 through 12 for us. 
Here's Jesus' instruction. First, don't bring anything with you. Carry no money bag, take no knapsack, no sandals, don't equip yourself. That makes us nervous, right? Don't bring your superior culture. Don't bring your amazing gifts and abilities. Just go on your way and learn to be radically, hear it, dependent on the Lord of the harvest to do his work. Second, go with purpose. In verse 4b, greet no one on the road. Don't dilly-dally, my father would say. Don't stop to smell the roses. Why? Because the assignment is urgent. You have no time for casual conversation. Third, announce the grace of reconciliation. When you go to a house, declare peace. You represent, you are an ambassador of the Prince of Peace. Peace be with you. He didn't say, come to a house and say, hey, God's got a wonderful plan for your life. It is true, God does have a wonderful plan for your life, but his plan is peace. Reconciliation between you and God, between you and your neighbor. And then fourth, proclaim the merciful rule of God. Verse 9, say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. That word kingdom is the verb form of the noun basilica. Basileo is the rule of God. A basilica is an international place of worship where God rules in justice and mercy. The city in Spain, Barcelona, is a Catalan name after Basilica. It, in Catalan, means cathedral, a place where God is honored and glorified. Jesus does that in us. He changes this old, angmoor, worn-out tent by his spirit into a basilica, a place where he rules in justice and in mercy. Now, now, I understand that some of us listening online, we actually live with people who are not believers. We sometimes feel the tension of being in the same household. But here is the glory of God's divine placement of you in that household. Your only obligation in that, your mission field, is to say, the kingdom of God is near. He rules in me. He brings peace and reconciliation. And so, dear friend, God calls you not to suffer, but to rejoice that he has placed in you the presence and given to you the assignment of peace and reconciliation. A Saskatchewan 
where Sherry and I serve for six winters because it's a part of Canada that has some brutal winters. I pastored in Saskatchewan for six years, and Saskatchewan in Canada is called the breadbasket of Canada because in Saskatchewan there are 37 million acres all sown with wheat. So we had several wheat farmers in our church in Saskatchewan, and every single year during September, some farmers' wives would show up on Sunday and apologize on behalf of their husbands. Because once the wheat had been cut, once the wheat was laying down on the ground, every day they did not get it up and gathered left them at risk of losing everything. And their wives would come to the church and say, sorry, pastor, my husband's not going to be here because judgment day is coming, meaning the first snow comes in September. Once that snow falls, it grips hold of the wheat all laying down on the ground. It will melt again. The wheat gets wet. It begins to rot, and they would be finished. September, they get out in the harvest with urgency. Judgment day is coming. And in the harvest that Jesus speaks, there is urgency, but only if you believe in judgment day. This is why Jesus cried out in verses 13 through 15, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! We've mentioned this word woe before, right? It's one of those Greek words that sounds like it's meaning. Woe meaning ooey. It's a grieving sound. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. We, we see Jesus using that, that word. He's not cursing. He's grieving. When I realized this, I actually felt crushed in my own heart because Sherry and I live on the 21st floor of a flat and I often look out on the beauty of Singapore. I take photos of sunrises. I say to Sherry, this is a beautiful place. Yes, I look at Singapore with wonder, but I seldom grieve. Jesus looked at cities and villages not at the building that the villagers had created, but he looked through the lens of eternity and he grieved. He saw their current condition through the lens of eternal judgment. And he said this, it will be more bearable for you, Tyre and Sidon, then for you, Capernaum, you think you'll be exalted because you experience great miracles? No, you will be brought down to the pit of hell. Jesus was grieving. You, you, you see, there, there is levels of judgment. Not according to me, according to Dr. Luke. There are levels of judgment. Tyre and Sidon had no ambassador of grace, no ambassador of the Prince of Peace who proclaimed in the streets, 
peace upon you. The kingdom of God has drawn near. But you, Capernaum, the son of heaven, spoke and a centurion's son was healed, servant was healed. He caused a lame man to get up and walk. He forgave sin. You had light and salt in your midst and tasted nothing and saw nothing. And so Jesus grieves. It's possible that there are some who have found us online this Sunday. Perhaps you are not a believer. Perhaps you're just nervous. COVID is everywhere, and so you've stumbled upon our live stream. Friend, Jesus at this moment is not judging you. He is grieving over you. But he's brought you to this YouTube channel with purpose so that you might hear the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. And if you would be given liberty, just like his heart's desire for his people in each of these towns on the way to Jerusalem, if he could liberate you to sing the words of this old hymn, the hymn that I heard as a young man that broke my heart, the hymn that made me nervous as Jesus was passing through my town, I sang, pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry, while on others thou art calling. Do not pass me by. But the good news is there is also joy in this harvest. Now, I I think you know that Sherry has one or two really, really favorite preachers. One, as you know, is Tim Keller. And the other, as you can probably imagine, is Pastor Eugene. That's right. Every time Pastor Eugene um, shares a message, like last Sunday, the very next day, on Monday, we unpack the message on our walk on the East Coast Park. And last week, you know, Sherry had never seen The Lord of the Rings, because for her, that was like, oh, that's a guy movie. She doesn't like those kind of movies, so she's never watched it. And now Eugene, last week, mentioned The Lord of the Rings, and suddenly she had this great idea, I'm going to watch this with our grandkids. And and once she gets this in her mind, I can't dissuade her because after all, a preacher said it, he watched it, all three, and so Sherry had it in her mind, I'm going to watch this with my grandchildren and and we'll have all manner of spiritual conversations. And so she WhatsApped our daughter-in-law in in Vancouver and she said, next time I'm back, hey, I've got this great idea, I'd like to watch the Lord of the Rings with with our our grandchildren and, and, and we'll enjoy that together. And she was a bit taken aback by my daughter-in-law's response, which was, oh, they will never sleep again. Because, you know, there is this. (laughs) You know, know, when Gandalf the wizard confronts Sauron, the most powerful, evil, slamming his wizard staff on the ground, proclaiming, thou shalt not pass. The pinnacle moment of this series, when, when victory for good was near. Now, now, 
just so you know, this is an awesome movie. It's meant to be an analogy. It's not meant to be literal. And yet, two weeks ago, one of the largest churches and most influential churches in the world gathered its apostolic staff on their platform, called their people to gather in the auditorium. They got themselves their own wizard staff. They pounded it on the floor and proclaimed, Thou shalt not pass spirit of racism. We, we have this concept that what we do in this building, the things we say, that is spiritual warfare. I think Luke has a word for this church and for that church, and that word is beware of counterfeits. Beware of counterfeit kingdom battles, counterfeit kingdoms, counterfeit warfare, because verses 17 through 24 tells us that kingdom battles are won not in the prayer closet, not while pounding a wizard staff on the church platform, not by running into the sanctuary and praying for protection, but the battle is won out there. The battle is in the harvest, and the joy comes when we engage the battle and see God out there winning. The joy comes for the workers in verses 17 through 20. The joy comes as the 72 returned. They returned how? With joy. Why? Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning, not because somebody was pounding a staff in the worship center, not because someone sought shelter in the sanctuary and prayed for protection, not because of any other reason except I sent you and you went. Then Satan was tossed from his throne. Not when we sing songs in this place, not when we gather, but when we go. Behold, meaning notice, look, pay attention. The enemy has power, but I have given you authority. Authority means not just power, but power to act. I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Now, please, this does not mean that Christians have some kind of immunity power over snakes and scorpions. If you pick up a snake, as I once did, it will bite you just like it bites everybody. What this means is, it is analogous. The sting of a scorpion, the bite of a serpent, is analogous to the power of the enemy. God has given you, who have gone, authority over and above the power of the evil one. 
He has the authority. Satan has some power. But Jesus binds the strong man while his people plunder his house. That is spiritual warfare. Therefore, Jesus reminds his ambassadors, don't rejoice that you have this power because actually it comes from Jesus. Rejoice that as my ambassadors, your names are written in heaven. You go as an ambassador for the kingdom with a heavenly passport. Rejoice for that reason. Not because the enemy is bound and defeated when the gospel expands, but because you have kingdom citizenship. Not just is there joy for the workers, though. There is joy also for the master. Verses 21 through 23 says, In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, Thank you, Father. You hear the Trinity involved in this harvest battlefield? Jesus, the Son, rejoiced in God the Spirit and thanked God the Father. What? Master, owner of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and you have revealed them to little children. This kingdom cannot be taught. It cannot be discovered. It can only be revealed. And in his grace and mercy, God has revealed it first to the weak, to the marginalized, to the small, to the cracked pots of this community so that his glory might be shown. This is, Father, your gracious, unmerited will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and find yourself here. Find yourself in God's Word. No one knows who the Son is except those the Son has revealed it to. If you know Jesus, he has pursued you in your village. The kingdom drew near to you. He liberated your pride and you cried out humbly, oh Jesus, pass me not by. And he has set up his rule in you. The kingdom is a mystery revealed. It's not a truth discovered. By the Father's grace, not our merit. By the Son's choice, he is revealed. And the kingdom expands with every human soul he occupies. This is a couple of entertainers that go by the stage name Penn and Teller. Penn and Teller are humorous magicians. They run their shows out of Las Vegas. They've made hundreds of millions of dollars with magic and humor. Penn is the taller one. 
He's the only one who speaks. He's the humorous one. He's verbose in his conversations. He's got an online video blog that he shares life and magic tricks. They've got their own television program in America. I think you can even get it on YouTube. Penn and Teller are known just not only by their magic or by their humor, but Penn, Gillette, the taller one, is famously an atheist. Now, I'm not going to play the video, but after the service is over and you've done some reflection, you can stay on YouTube and just search a gift of a Bible. And in this video, Penn Gillette tells about ending a show, and a businessman came up to him and was really complimentary. Said, hey, love the show. It was funny. It was amazing tricks. I'd like to figure out how you did that. And then this businessman handed him a little Gideon's Bible. And Penn knows so little about the Bible. He saw that it was just part of the Bible, so small, couldn't be the whole Bible, and, and the Book of Psalms is there, so he said, it's only, only the New Testament, you know, Psalms. No, 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 he's an atheist, so he shouldn't be an expert in our book. But in that video, he says this, I admire that man. He wasn't offensive. He was kind. He gave me the Bible. And then in that video, he says this, if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and that some people could be going to hell, how much would you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life was possible and yet not tell them? You see, friends, why the harvest is urgent. Because judgment day is coming. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. Unlike Saskatchewan farmers, we don't know if it's happening in September. It may come at any hour. And yet we are grieving, not because we can't go, but because we cannot gather. We are focused on a faith that is self-ish. What is good for me? It suddenly occurred to me that Penn Gillette is not an atheist because he doesn't believe the judgment of God is coming. He's an atheist because he's living in a world full of Christians who act like they don't believe it. Christians, we have lost our sense of urgency. We begin to focus on chores in the church instead of the work in the harvest. Do you remember last week Eugene declared Jesus is the light of the world? This is why the reflection question was, consider the possibility that you, you would have salt but never use it, that you would have light but never turn them on. How, how would your life on this earth be diminished with no salt and no light, 
salt had a specific purpose when applied to meat, when applied to protein. It delayed corruption. It delayed rot. Salt does no good if you don't apply it. Lights don't need to announce their arrival. They just need to be applied to the darkness, and light is obvious. The problem is I'm shining light in a building that is already full of light. Because we don't apply salt. Our neighbors still live in the corruption and rot of sin because we don't apply light to darkness. They still live in darkness. I've heard that one of the most tragic things about COVID and this pandemic is that many COVID patients are asymptomatic and don't realize it. So they walk around not realizing they are still contagious. How much more tragic then is the Christian? Because asymptomatic Christians are not contagious. There is no light that can be caught. No salt that can be applied. And so our neighbors are left unchanged by this faith, even while the kingdom is near. My friends, if all we do is study the Bible, but never ask, what am I to do with it? then we might not be a basilica. We are just a synagogue. I want to invite you to bow with me for just a moment. This passage ends with Jesus turning aside to his disciples and saying something to them. Specifically, Luke said, saying to them in private, Blessed are the eyes of the harvester. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings desired to see it. Many desired to see God's kingdom come. Moses longed for it. David wished for it. Isaiah and Daniel, Josiah longed to see it. Friends, these are the days of the harvest. I wonder if in this quiet moment, God might bring to your heart the specific harvest field He's inviting you to join him in. For some of you, it might mean go with purpose to your family. Love your mother well. 
grieve over her condition. Draw near to her and say, the grace of reconciliation is here. The rule of God is near. He has loved you so much. He's placed this little basilica in your home. Maybe it's your father. Maybe it's your parents. You don't need to drag them to church. But you could say to them, because of his grace and mercy, the rule of God is near you. It's here. Maybe your mission field is your office. You know, I know your supervisor doesn't pay you to be a Christian, but you have lunch time. And you have a mission field. Take nothing with you except the expectation that even now, in preparation for our obedience, the Lord of heaven and earth is binding the strong man and giving you, his ambassadors, the authority to draw near, to be his ambassadors, this kingdom of life and light. Oh, Father God, as we turn our hearts to your word, we realize that this morning we need to come with confession. We got distracted by the comfort of our fellowship. We got distracted by enjoying the gathering of your people, rejoicing in one another's presence as we sang songs of praise to you. And now because of your great love for the harvest, because you cry who we over the nations, you have brought a pandemic. God, we grieve not because we cannot gather. We grieve because we have been so slow to say, here am I, send me. I pray that wherever you find us this morning, O oh God, you would help us to hear your gentle voice, the voice of mercy and grace, that you would help us hear you say, go. The harvest is white. I have given you authority. Live, work, serve as my ambassadors. We invite you to do us so that you would be glorified even in this season of global pandemic. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.